get to the lawn and we can have a chat. Yeah, yeah, I think you stay as busy as I do. <laughs> they always say busy is a good thing. So, I mean, if sometimes I feel like this time of the year I start slowing down, but it almost kind of with the whole podcast and stuff, it just kind of seems like it picks up. Yeah, I'm I'm backed up right now. I think we've got we're backed up eight months in editing footage because we just went we got back from Africa, had a small break, started hunting in the states, and we've pretty much hunted every day since. So between yeah. here and Montana and Georgia and Florida and Ohio, we've just been steady. So and I've still got a couple couple weeks left. Yeah, well, you said, and apparently you had a bit of a show last night. So I mean, you, you you guys must be catching up with a bit of time, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, you you've been a PH for a long time. You know, those things happen. Sometimes people yeah. make a bad shot, and you just you know, you wound an animal, and you got to go find it. <laughs> it is what it is. It's part of the game, man. Huh? It's part of the game. So, Sean, I want to know before before we get into it, am I pronouncing your surname right? Is it Kogut? It's Kogut. Kogut. Okay, right. So, Salt Lake Outdoors. Tell me where yep. that originated from. What's it all about? I mean, yes, I've watched some of your footage and I just love the way you present everything. Just the way the hunting scene is drawn upon here yeah, in South Africa and, and abroad. Well, it, you know, honestly, it, it started out of a passion for hunting, kind of like all of our lives did. And um, it it originated here in Kentucky several years ago. I bought a uh, bought a small farm, um, which was the first farm that I actually ever owned for myself, and it was specifically a recreational track that we were going to use for deer hunting. And it was the the name of the road to get into the place was Salt Lake. That was the name of the road. And um, uh, my buddy Mike and I just really enjoyed it. And from there, I went ahead and said, you know what, maybe I'd like to do a little outfitting and started outfitting, ended up buying a couple other bigger tracks and then putting some properties together. And uh, so we uh, tried our hand at the outfitting thing for, for a couple of years and it was it was good. It was successful. But I got to where it was it was a job and I didn't enjoy the hunting side of it anymore. So we decided about two years ago now that you know what, we're going to finish up the clients that we have already booked and we're just going to focus on the the social media side and try to bring what we like and love about the outdoors to other people. And from a from a perspective of a every man can do it kind of thing, you know, these these hunts that we go on and things we're not doing, um, you know, state wise, we're not doing these big high fence hunts that cost, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars. We try to capture the essence of, you know, what anybody can come over and afford kind of thing, whether it's in the States or it's in Africa and, and try to present it from a, you know, a, a conservation side too. So people understand it's not just trophy hunting, you know, there, there is something behind it and it means more. Um, but yeah, and then we've, we've started into merchandising now and the new website's getting ready to go live. And, um, you know, we've got our podcast that's getting ready to crank up and we've got Brianna that we brought on board as our social media manager earlier this year. And she's doing a really good job growing all the socials. And so, but yeah, for, pretty much that's how we got started. And, you know, it, it really kicked things off for me with, with Africa. Um, especially from a from a being able to film an environment where there's so many different huntable species of game and there's so many opportunities and that's kind of where it kicked off there and you know we've done that for several years now and as as kind of we grow a little bit um i went from the just throwing something out there you know just to see a kill shot with some background music to to really trying to make a story behind it um 
you know, and each hunt is unique um, for its own reason. And that's something I learned, you know, it took a long time and I actually didn't learn it personally. I watched how other people interacted during the hunt and what it meant to them. And that's kind of what I draw from. And, you know, so those experiences and fun they have and the ups and the downs and the roller coaster, that's kind of where I draw from when I'm trying to edit anything or do anything or set anything up. And it's, uh, you know, I want to bring the whole story and I don't want to show just the, the, the fun parts. I want to show the ugly parts too. You know, and I ask the hard questions, you know, when, when I go to, no matter what outfitter we're at, you know, we always sit down and we'll do a podcast and, you know, I want to ask the, the tough questions and not beat around the bush. And I, you know, I think, I think that's the best way to handle those kind of things too. It's just to go straight to the point. And I, you know, your podcast, you do that too. You ask the tough questions and you answer the tough questions, you know, especially like tipping, you know, it took me three or four years to finally get it done because nobody wants to talk about it when they go to South Africa. Right. It's like a huge yeah. thing. So you did a podcast, I think two years ago now, or a year and a half ago now, and it was perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something so that people need to know because nobody wants to tell you that, you know, that it's well, sure. like and- a faux pas. I, I mean, I think I think that's one of the things that 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 attracted me to your page so much and, and, and following your story and stuff, because I think, you know, I often I get so frustrated on especially on social media with guys, you know, putting out all these kill shots and all this sort of stuff, because, you know, that's all great and wonderful. But the way you've expressed it and, and, and especially the way you portray Africa it's, it's about experience. And I, I often say this, you know, with my new up and coming business that I've got going here is that I never want to sell a hunt, but I, I rather want to sell the experience. You know what I mean? So it, it's for, for the average, for the average hunter in the United States that can afford to come out to South Africa. They're not going to go and be shooting 30, 40, 50 animals, a safari, you know, they're going to be shooting the 10 package safaris, but it's, it's more about the experience. And, and, I mean, just following you guys this year with, with, with those kudu hunts, I mean, just to see the guys' excitement. Because, I mean, I, I've hunted one kudu my whole life, plenty with clients, but for myself, one. And, and when, I, when I watched some of that footage that you put on social media, you can, you can relate because that experience is so indrilled in you. And it's, and it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. But just for, for, for the disclaimer, please, Sean, I, I don't want you to hide anything or, or hold back on this podcast. I, I, you know, if, you, if there's any questions or, or if I ask any questions, I want you to try and be as honest as possible. I know we try and beat around the bush, but that's something I've loved about your content. It's just straight to the point. What you see is what you get, and, and that's what we need to. So please don't, don't feel like you have to hide anything. <laughs> No, and, and that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm brutally honest sometimes, and I think that that may come across a little weird, but, you know, that we show, you know, we show the good stuff and the bad stuff about it, too. You know, people miss, people make mistakes, you know, it's not yeah, always pretty. Uh, you know, that spot and stock doesn't always go down the way you want it to. You know, there was an episode um, that we did. Uh, it was one of the first ones that came out this year from this past trip. And it was a father-daughter hunt with with Mike, my buddy Mike and his daughter Dakota. And it was a Lechway. And, you know, we she made a, a very good, what we thought was a very good first shot at, you know, 220, 230 off the six. You know, animal went down. Well, it turned out she spined it, got up, ran. She had to shoot it on the run a couple of times. And I think she ended up putting five in it. And we showed it all like the whole, th- yeah. the whole time. And it was a, it, it was a, it was a clusterfuck, but it, you know, at the end of the day, things happen, right? That's the kind sure. of side, you know, it's never, it's not always just one shot, one kill, but for, from a hunting perspective, we want to be as ethical as possible and take ethical shots, but it doesn't always happen that way. You know, sometimes you got to just go on the fly and, you know, shit happens. So you deal with it and you go get it done. And, 
um, at the end of the day, I'm looking at an 18 year old girl that's never been out of the country before. And she's standing there with this giant lechway and the shit show that happened. And she's just as happy as she could possibly be. And that's it. I mean, and, and in, in some ways, I think, I think for, for the first time guys coming out, what you show and what you depict out there on your show, it's, it's, it's so important because I think it takes a lot of pressure off um, the actual hunting and, and the professional hunters when they're out there because they see in raw footage what actually goes on in the bush. And because a lot of the time, I mean, you, you get up to these big moments, especially on like your dangerous game hunts, kudu hunting, um, whatever it may be. And you often find that people, you know, they want to put this picture perfect shot in there and, and the pressure kind of overwhelms them. And I think that's where the, the buck fever term comes from. But um, yeah, so firstly, just keep doing what you're doing it's it's fantastic it's wonderful it's really it's, it's showing such a unique side to africa and and it's coming from across the pond if you know what i mean it's not professional yeah. hunting is over here trying to depict a story that is not true sometimes whereas your guys it's just raw and it's uncut and i i love it i absolutely love it but where where, where did the love for africa start uh, so uh, this was, I don't know, nearly a dozen years ago now, we were actually at an NRA event in South Florida. And my good friend, uh, Mike Sumner, who I think you've met before uh, at Hunters yeah. Hill, um, he and I and our wives were at a, it was a benefit, like a fundraiser kind of thing. And there was an Africa trip that came up for auction. And it was a really bad turnout that year. And it looked like it could be bought for pretty cheap. So he bid on it and, and won the trip. And it was a, a, a trip for four for, I think it was a five day to uh, Limpopo. It was actually with Nooms on. And uh, so we went. Um, I'd never had, I'd always kind of wanted to go, but it wasn't like top of my list. Like I, there were several other things stateside I wanted to do before I went to Africa. And, you know, frankly, I'm like, you know, I'll go and I'll, you know, it was a two, two animal minimum, you know, per person. So I'll shoot an Impala and a Warthog. And I never got really excited about it until I got off the plane in country. So, um, and not necessarily in Johannesburg proper, but when we started making that long drive out to, um, uh, we essentially were on the Botswana border. So long drive through Limpopo and, uh, but I'm, we're going down this, you know, cart path road for hours on end. And I can just start seeing eyes everywhere on the side of the road and like, Oh shit, what's that? What's that? What's that? And then it was like 3 AM when we got in the first morning, uh, slept in a little bit, got up and I get out of camp and I'm looking at animals I've never seen in my life that are, you know, 50, 60 yards away. Like there's Lechway, there's a giraffe, there's a, yeah, and I've seen pictures of these things, but I had no idea what they were. So it just like instantly that morning, it was like, oh my God, this is real and this is happening and this is so yeah. cool. So, um, and we, you know, I got to enjoy it with a group of friends and it, it went from a, you know what, we're just going to have a good time and see where this takes us to just a passion for continuing to come back. And the first group, we got really lucky too. Nooms on runs a first rate outfit. They're very, very good. And, um, you know, I think that took a lot of the pressure off from us because I didn't know what to expect. And when you hunt with them, they can, they do the whole VIP pickup at the airport. So, you know, they're meeting you at the gate. They're there to collect your baggage. You meet your PHs as soon as you come out and you're there with them through the entirety of it. And otherwise, you know, going to Africa for your first time and not having that kind of thing can be pretty daunting, right? You, you don't know what to expect. And you hear such bad stories about perspective like oh shit do i really want to go there do i want to take my family there is it safe and the answer is yes it is 
You know, it, it's yeah. no different than any big city anywhere else in, in, in the state. It's the same thing, you know. Um, but it was it was a really good experience. It was too short. A five-day hunt is not nearly long enough. Um, we learned that the first trip. And But, you know, it was funny. We hunted for five days. I think all of us nearly cried when we had to go home because none of us wanted to leave. Um, we had, I think, two animals on our list of piece, and I think that number got to seven or eight by the time we were done. We were seeing stuff that we'd never seen before. And, um, you know, we, on the plane flight back, Mike and I, uh, talked for several hours and like, you know, man, I've really enjoyed this. I think I'd like to go back. And so, you know, he said, all right, well, let's make a plan and try to schedule something, you know, maybe another two or three years down the road, three months later, we'd rebooked and we're back at, you know, back over there. And this time we're going to Hunter's Hill and we've gone every year with the exception of the COVID year that we just couldn't get in. We've been every single year since, um, and it just keeps growing. And, uh, you know, for me, um, obviously, we, we all started with the planes game packages and, you know, learning the animals and, and what to expect. And there's a huge difference between, you know, hunting in Namibia and Limpopo and then the Cape where you guys hunt. And even in the Cape, there's a bunch of geographically different areas and terrain that you mm. hunt, too. And that's so unique. So I mean, you can go to the Eastern Cape 10 different times and you can hunt areas you've never seen. And the hunting's totally different every time. You know, yeah, and it's yeah. it's really cool to experience. I mean, we've hunted I've hunted at night in a pineapple patch, you know, for bushbuck before, and then it's just crazy the stuff you get into yeah. there. You never know what, where you're going to end up. And one of the things I really enjoy is the the way that uh, you guys, the PHs especially, have built these relationships with the farmers over there. So you can actually come and you can work with them and and hunt game on their farms. And you know, kind of goes back. It helps them both, you know, financially and and with the meat perspective. And it's it's a relationship that we don't have in the states. And I wish that if anything, people from the states would take that away. That say, hey, listen, this works over there, and this could work here. Because if you go talk to a farmer here, they're going to say, hell no, get get away. You're not you're not going to hunt on my farms. You know, there's none of that. Everybody's so worried about, you know, getting sued or whatever it is. But the way you guys do it is fantastic. And just the, I think it's the, that passion for conservation and preserving the species because they have a value, you know, and people understand that there. And I wish that was something that I could take away and, and really get, get across to people here stateside. Sean, you, you mentioned something really interesting because I, I want to get to relationships. But, you know, I just often find that there's, there's these two great, um, conservation programs that you guys have in the states uh, with the whole tag system and and the way like you mentioned the relationships with the farmers back here and it's just it's just weird that we can't find some sort of happy medium between the two and try and make everything work but you know i guess i guess it happens but like you've mentioned you've, you've been over to south africa a couple of times and um it's something i've seen from from my perspective is that um relationships are building a lot stronger because I think the trust is held in a relationship. Um, and one of, I mean, a very good friend of mine, Ohanis, and you guys have built a fantastic relationship, you mm. know, um, and you've taken him on with your adventures going forward. How important are these relationships for, for future, shif future safari planning um, going forward? I, I mean, I you know, has Hannes played such a big role in that? Yeah, and he does. And frankly, you develop a bond with your pH. Um, and it's once you find somebody that you've you've bonded with like that and, and you have things in common and you're both on the same page, then it just I mean, I've hunted with Hannes enough now where we don't have to really talk about anything. You know, we just know what each other's gonna do and what's expected. And and to me, there's that it's just a peace of mind, you know. It's it's great to know that he's got my back. And I know that even prior to the hunt, you know, he spends months and months and months, he's going out, he's scouting, he's, you know, talking to people, he's scheduling, he's doing this. 
this and doing that. He's putting in all the footwork. So when we get there, the trip is as seamless as possible. And when I bring new people and they see that kind of relationship that Hannes and I have, and it's such a well-oiled machine and all the work that goes into it and all the planning that goes into it, it just makes it nice. And then, you know, instantly when I bring new people, you know, they kind of form a bond with their pH, you know, yeah. and it's not all the time, you know, I've, I've, there's been some outfits that we've hunted with where, yeah, the, I've, we've never had a bad pH. I don't think that exists. I mean, I'm sure there, there are some that are, you know, not as good, but I, we've never had a bad pH and I've never had a, a guest that's come with me say, you know, I really did not like my pH, but with me and Hannes, it's like, I'm only ever going to hunt with Hops. period. You know, whether we're, you know, and we, he went to Namibia with me last year and we're going again this year. And I think I'm in country for eight weeks this coming year. And we're starting in, uh, I think we're starting in South Africa. We're going to Mozambique. We're going to Namibia. We're going to Botswana. You know, so there's a bunch of things we're doing and he's going with, you know, on those trips. And it's important for me to be there. Even like when we were in Namibia, he wasn't actually my, my pH, but it was important for him to be there with me. And, and, you know, because I trust him, that's the thing, you know, I know that it, so, you know, if he tells I never second guess him either. We just, I just know that if he, you know, he's, if he says, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, then that means I'm on the gun and it may not even be on my list, but you know, he sees something fantastic. And you know, those are the kind of things that you can't, you know, you, you can go out, you know, try to hunt a free range kudu. Well, shit happens and you end up seeing something that's just a fantastic trophy that you may never get a chance at again. Well, guess what? We, our plans just changed and, and that's what we're doing. And, but, but having that pH that you have trust in and you've you built a bond with is, is most important, I think. And that keeps you coming back even, you know, and, and pH has changed outfitters, you know, they don't always stay with the same company. And, you know, for me, it's more about my relationship with the pH than the outfitter itself. And like I said, the outfitters I've hunted with have been fantastic, but I'm going where my guy goes. That's just how it is. You know, so that's I mean, that's such an important thing that you just mentioned there, because I, I just feel that that's where the industry has taken a massive, massive shift. And I've seen it personally. I mean, I've been here for this will be my 15th year coming up. And it's 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 been such an interesting change of events. I mean, from from 2015, I could have kind of seen it, you know, transcend into that clients building these special relationships with their professional hunters and trusting them on their every move. But with that being said, when, when you bring in new guys out, how influential will the outfitter be in making those final decisions? For instance, like the father daughter, um, hunt, um, they're going to have a certain package. How are you chatting to Hannes about selecting those sort of things? Well, you know, so Hannes, um, that's the thing. So Hannes and I just aren't hunting buddies. We I mean, at least once a month, if not two or three times a month, we chat. And, you know, so we start planning these trips you know, a year in advance for the most part. And so he's got a really good idea exactly who's coming, what they're, you know, what they're capable of. You know, we have those conversations. Are they comfortable? Are they hunters in the States? You know, how well do they shoot? Are they comfortable off sticks? And, um, you know, so he's got a good idea. And with Mike and Dakota, especially on, on their first trip over, they've both hunted before. Um, you know, obviously Mike hunts with me all over the place. He's a very good shooter, but Dakota's 18 and young and not been out of the state. So it was important for us to put them with somebody that would understand there's a lot of patience involved with her because you can't just go fast and shoot quickly and get comfortable because it's just not going to happen. And, uh, you know, Hannes worked it out where, where Chris Liebenberg was actually their pH. And I don't think they could have asked for a better pH for, for Mike and Dakota on their first trip. Um, 
and I was there. I actually filmed for them for I think the first three or four days, and it was it was a struggle trying to get her on a zebra and on a wildebeest, and you know, lots of missed opportunities. And it because you just have to take your time and be patient. And Chris was so gentle with her and so good, and he did it in a kind of a humorous way too. They had this banner going back and forth, and they really fed off each other. And it was just it's really cool to see those people, you know, because I'm now behind the camera and I'm watching people bond in front of me. And so by like day two, like Dakota instantly, oh no, Chris is my guy and I trust him. Whatever he says we're going to do, that's exactly what we're going to do. And, you know, you can see it in some of the videos where he said, put it on the shoulder. And as soon as I tell you to just squeeze the trigger, don't even think about it. So that's what I did. And it went straight down and it's great and on and on, you know, so it's, it's important to pick the right pH for sure. And, um, and I think too, one of the things that I, I enjoy about, um, Africa is the camaraderie. Um, even when there's other people at, um, at camp that may not be in your group, it seems like we all have something in common. You know, we're all hunters and we're kind of there. So I've met, you know, over the past, call it 10 years now, I've made dozens of friends that I would not have met otherwise from the States because, you know, of our relationships built there and hunting together and, but it's been unique, but, but I digress The pH relationship with the client, I think is more important than the outfitter. Um, the outfitter is responsible to make sure everybody has a good time there and that, you know, they're safe and, and the food is prepared and, and the lodging is set up. Um, but at the end of the day, it's that pH that that sells the the brand, the company, the outfitter, because he's with the client every single waking second, you know, and, and from your guys, you know, once the client goes to bed at night, your job's not over with. Right. You guys are still prepping and preparing. And then, you know, you're up an hour or two or several hours before, you know, everybody's up milling around camp, getting everything ready and make sure the buggies are ready and everything's fueled and the trackers know what they're supposed to do when, you know, you've got a game plan. And there's a lot that goes into it that people don't don't understand and don't see, you know, you guys, you know, a lot of times you're getting two or three hours of sleep a night if you even get that because you're lining up what's coming the next day and making sure your client's taken care of. And, you know, when when you're sitting there having dinner, you're with your client and, you know, afterward you're having drinks and you're with your client. And I've never, you know, like my pH, he will not leave until I go to bed. He'll sit right there with us the entire night and, and enjoy himself. Um, and I even know and I know he wants to go to bed desperately. Like you can see, like he's tired, but he won't do it. He just refuses to. So, you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to go go to bed early tonight, huh? Are you okay with that? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. <laughs> but, Sean, I mean, so your, your relationship, I mean, it's it's just so, again, once again, you've just picked up and you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's often people overlook these sort of aspects. And I'm so glad that you said that it's become one of the most, well, it's, it's really, really important for the professional hunter to carry the brand. So there's quite a bit of responsibility from, from our side towards the outfitter, you know, we got to we got to represent them as best as possible. But I wanted to find out what what sort of leap of faith did you have to take because something that slowly crept into I want to say a bad habit, but the industry as a whole is that a lot more Americans are doing a lot more dip and pack. Your relationship mm -hmm. with splitting images is definitely a special one. I watched the podcast um, with Warwick and that leap of faith i mean there, there's there's definitely risk involved in in trying to give these people your hard-earned trophies to to justify when was that key flip that you decided you know what hang on i'm gonna i'm gonna have everything done yeah 
Well, it was, um, to be honest with you, we, uh, both Mike and I had friends that had hunted Africa prior to us going and they had, um, I think they had a relationship with life form, um, which is, I think maybe Thaba Zimbi areas where they're based out of, or maybe closer to Joburg. Um, so our very first hunt, we used them and, and they were very good. And then I'd heard, I had other people that hunted the Cape before and said, listen, you know, the splitting image, they're a good company over there, but listen to your outfitter. And so for me, I'd already seen people do it and i know that it works well so we I did it once with life form and then since every single trip has been splitting image and with the exception of some uh logistic issues with especially those covid years i've never had an issue doug and his team do a fantastic job over there and i think it boils down to like i said for me it was a recommendation and when when i brought this group over this year you know i said listen guys i this is how i do it i don't dip and pack i trust these guys like you got to remember if you're dipping, packing your stuff back to the States, you're letting taxidermists work on animals that are not even from this country, right? They don't do this every single day. These guys, that's all they do. They build their own molds, their forms, everything. It's like, these guys really have it on lockdown. And yes, it takes a while. It absolutely does. But trust in them and they'll do a good job. And if there's an issue, you know, you've got Doug and Warwick and their whole staff there. I mean, they're Johnny on the spot to take care of it. And, and shit happens. Mistakes happen. Stuff happens, you know. But they're, Doug is the first person. I think he's just – he'll get on the phone with you and apologize and eat it no matter what it is. He'll just listen. It's our fault. Absolutely. I'll make good on it or I'll do something for you. And, and he's always been good that way. And, you know, so I think the referral portion of it is the best thing. If, if you've been – if you know somebody that's been and they've had, you know, good success with it it makes it easy if i had to if i wouldn't have known somebody to begin with i probably would have gone the dip and pack route and we i've done that exactly one time and that was during that that covid year and i regretted it um the the quality of the trophies that i got back were not even close um the whole it's going to be faster and cheaper to get it done in the states is bullshit that's not true it took way longer and it was probably 40 percent more by the time it was said and done and, you know, frankly, I've got a full body mount um, Limpopo bushbuck in my office, and it's one of the shittiest taxidermy jobs I've ever seen. I mean, you can see the stitching all the way down through, and it's just really disappointing because it's a, you know, several inch gold medal Limpopo bushbuck that I was so proud of, uh, proud enough to have it full body mounted in the taxidermy shit. Yeah. Yeah. So now he's so really to a back corner with other stuff behind him because it just didn't turn out well. <laughs> Yeah, I know, Shane, but you know, and then these things, like you said, they happen. So have you had any bad experiences in Africa? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the taxidermy side. So on the logistics side, you know, during the COVID year, I had an issue with one of the, the cargo companies that, um, you know, they said, okay, you know, your stuff's for and, you know, obviously you have to pay for your freight ahead of time to get it uh, drop shipped to Miami. And the price went from, we were expecting $2,500, $2,600 for our crates. And the price went up to like nine grand instantly. And the guy's like, you know, if you don't want to pay it, your shit can stay here. And what he didn't realize is I already had, I had two other friends with packages on that plane with crates and my volume and weight and size was almost identical. And they were getting charged that $2,500 rate and they charged me, you know, 9,000 US to get the same crate home. So um, definitely had a bad experience there. Uh, but other than that, um, we, yeah, I had a little bit of a bad experience in Johannesburg proper. Um, I decided to, the second time over to kind of, 
logistically do everything myself and I booked my own hotel and tried to stay a little off property and Marriott property and just getting there and um, you get in late at night and it's really easy uh, to get taken advantage of in Johannesburg. Um, you know, you've got all these porters that are there at the airport that, oh, no, no, it's my job. I got to help you. And then they always, you know, then they want to hand out and then it's their 15 friends. And, you know, it was a, enough where my wife and Mike's wife felt uncomfortable. Um, and after that, I've, I went straight to Africa Sky after that, never looked back. You know, I've got Gilbert there. He's there all the time and I can call Africa Sky and they take care of all our stuff. So it, it, it was it, it was a little sketchy. I don't think it was scary, but my wife certainly didn't like it and it, it made her uncomfortable. But um, and there is a downside to South Africa, too, in that um, not everything you see is peaches and cream. You're going to get a reality check when you get there, you know. Um, you're going to drive through some of these towns and villages that are frankly, you know, it looks like a third world country sometimes. And that's kind of the ugly side. We show all these beautiful areas that we hunt and these nice lodges and everything else, but that's part of that country. You know, you just, and, and you need to understand that that's, you know, where the country's been and, and from apartheid where it's moved forward. And, and you know, for centuries before with the Boer Wars and everything else that's happened in your country. And it's kind of led to this from the Zulu Wars, to the Boer Wars, to the, you know, on and on and on and on, you know, there's always been civil unrest in that country and it's kind of led to what it is today but you got to take the good with the bad right i'd rather see it and don't you know listen this is the reality of it this is the way life is now and this is why we're here and um that's one thing that honest has been really good and, and frankly any ph i've ever hunted with um you know they're there's such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the history of the country and i really enjoy learning about the country um, and the history, you know, when the, the English and the Dutch settled and everything and the Zulu Wars, like, I've learned so much along the years. And now I research it on my own and I read it on my own. It's just such an interesting topic. And um, but there, you know, like I said, there's some parts of the country that that aren't favorable. And, you know, you're like, man, this is not great. And, you know, you learned about the national flower right away, you know, the plastic bag. And it's, you know, there's and for me, there's I don't understand it because there's a sense of pride in, in everything that I do. And I don't know how people could choose to, to live that way. And uh, but but it's here in the States, too. If you go to the south side of Chicago or you go to Detroit or you go to some of the suburbs of, you know, outside New York City, you know, there's ghetto where it's like that here, too. So we have that same thing. And I for me, I just wasn't raised that way. So I don't understand, you know, why you can't have a little bit more, you know, I don't know, personal passion and, and responsibility and, you know, want to, it just, it's, but it, people need to see it though. I mean, cause it's part of the experience too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's also, you know, I, I think, I think in both countries, us and the U S I mean, politics have played such a massive role in, you know, just um, putting everyone on a terrible mental stability issue at the moment. I mean, I, I just, I'm all, wherever I turn, it's just bad news. We've got, israel and palestine going off at each other ukraine and russia it's it's just a, a dog show at the moment but sean you know getting back into the hunting side of things you've hunted pretty much everything what is there still left for sean to hunt um i do so this year i'm uh cape buffalo um I've got uh, I've got two of the tiny ten to finish. I've got a Sunni and a I believe a red diker are the only two left there. 
Um, probably gonna, I, I had an opportunity two years ago with Greg to hunt a hippo and it just didn't work out. Um, so I've got a hippo, you know, I'd send her, you know, the big five at that point in time. Um, and then for me, it's going to be moving up North and getting, you know, um, start chasing the gazelles, the Thompsons and the grants and, and some of the other lechways and, you know, lesser kudu is way high up on my list. And that's, you know, kind of a bucket list kind of hunt for me, um, especially being successful. You know, I've hunted several free range kudu in the Cape and I've been successful and seen other people do it. And I just love hunting kudu and, you know, to, to taste a lesser kudu, I think would be really, really exciting, but still, I mean, there's tons of species out there that, you know, that, that I've not had a chance to hunt yet. And, but for me, there's also, I'm a bow hunter too, and I really love to bow hunt. So there's this whole opportunity now for me to kind of start all over, right. And get in a blind and do it with a bow and spot and sock with a bow. And that's a, a totally different kind of hunting there. And, um, so it's not like, well, you know, well, I killed one Impala with a gun. That doesn't mean I can't shoot another one with a bow kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And how, yeah, yeah. how, how how different has your first experience been and i'm, I'm talking financially now uh how different was your first experience from when you went the first time to where you are now from a cost point of view has the market de decreased quite dramatically since you went the first time i think it has yeah i think it's it's definitely decreased i think you get a lot there's a lot more value to be had now than there was back then um you know, especially, you know, I've got, uh, obviously I've hunted with Hunters Hill a bunch. I've hunted with Nooms on a couple of, several times now. And then obviously Avula uh, more recently. And, you know, especially if there's a, a, a good size group going with you, um, you know, there's the opportunity for the outfitter to say, you know what, I can set aside the entire camp. I can cut some expenses. We can cheapen some of these prices up for you and, you know, get, get you on some good quality animals. So, but the prices in general have come down. I think on the taxidermy side, you know, because of just labor shortages and everything else that may have crept up a little bit, but I think overall, I think you get more bang for your buck now, certainly than you used to. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time that they can go on a, on a seven day hunt in South Africa and have the time of their life for call it 10 to $15,000 and, you know, come home with six to eight high quality animals. Yeah. You know, Sean, it's, it's, it's so interesting to, to hear you guys talk like that because for us, it's, it's always difficult. I mean, we're planning to come over now in January for the shows and the cost is just astronomical for mm -hmm. us to get over there and, and actually, you know, try and run a business that side. But, um, for you guys, it kind of seems almost extremely affordable how would does the average hunter in the united states are they able to afford a seven day safari in south africa well you know I, I don't know about the average hunter i would say in general yes i they certainly can't afford to come every single year like i do um and most people don't do that right so i'm i'm one of those weird ones i think you know you've got some you've got some clients that you've hunted that you hunt with every single year kind of no matter yeah. what i think patrick's one of your guys right yeah that's right yeah. So, you know, and I see he's over there. He's, I, he's there more than I am. I think he goes a couple times a year sometimes, but, uh, he's really got it bad, but yes, I think you can. And actually I'm bringing a group with me, uh, this year, I think there's 15 of us in this group that are coming on the, the first leg of the trip. And most of them, you know, are just kind of your everyday hunter and they've had to plan and save for the trip and, you know, work with them on logistics and, and getting the pricing right and the day rate. So they understood what they could do. And, you know, they, what they've realized is, is there that money goes a lot further over there than it does here um if you just want to go on an outfitted whitetail hunt 
you know, at just a kind of a normal place, you're looking at between five and $7,000 with no guarantees whatsoever. I'd rather take that $7,000 and go to Africa where I know I'm going to see, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300 animals a day, you know, in these concessions rather than go sit in a tree stand, you know, for five days straight to maybe see a deer, you know, so there's that side of it for me. And, you know, and, and, and it is affordable. It, it may not be every year for every person, but you can certainly, if you, if you do the research and you save a little bit, you can absolutely go. I mean, the, the money people spent just chasing whitetails alone is crazy. If you actually added up all your time in the field and your fuel and, and the feed that you're putting out and your trail cameras and everything else you're doing, you know, that's several thousand dollars a year. And that's before we take into account licensing. So if like for me, I'm in Kentucky right now where I actually own property, but because this isn't my primary residence, I have to pay an out-of-state tag and it's nearly $400 just for me to hunt the state of Kentucky. Well, Ohio is just a stone's throw away where we have the other farm and I don't live there either full-time. So I have to pay another $400 to hunt in that state. Georgia the same way. So, I mean, I'm several thousand dollars just in licensing, which I absolutely don't mind because those all go to conservation problems or conservation programs. And that keeps our, our law enforcement, which is something I think that we do differently than you guys do. Um, we spend a lot of money on law enforcement for wildlife. And I don't see that in Africa. You guys take it upon yourself to police it for the most part. And, and there are some security companies that, that can do that, but, but, you know, ours are nationalized police that actually do that. We have law enforcement that are, um, you know, trained specifically just for, for wildlife enforcement and they do a very good job with it too. You know, they get a bad rap because I'll, I, you know, people don't like to see the game warden come around, but he's there to do a job and make sure that everybody's, you know, following the same set of rules. And it's a good thing. Um, yeah. Um, Sean, I wanted to chat to you because like I said, I, I love the honesty and stuff. And, and while we're talking about organizations and stuff, how important, um, you know, I've got, I've got a situation now at the moment where, um, obviously there's outfitters that have done a lot of people in, um, especially some of my clients and, and stuff like that. But, um, often I go over to these shows, DSC, SCI, all of that sort of, what important role do they actually play there for you guys as far as protections concerned yeah in south africa um you know that's a thing i think if uh i'll give you an example so uh avula safaris um uh, chris and then you've got nancy stateside nancy is a when you go to the show you're going to meet nancy so you've got an american woman there that has been there several dozen times that, you know, has skin in the game and knows more about South Africa. She's probably, she's forgot more about South Africa than I'll ever know. And to talk to a person like that, that's so knowledgeable and that has everything on lockdown from the second you walk in, everything's done. You don't have to worry about it. There's a sense of comfort there. When you talk to a South African, you don't get as an American, especially you just randomly meet somebody, you know, at the SEI convention or something, you don't know anything about them, right? So you don't know where they're hunting. Is it safe? Is it a good outfit? You know, you really need to do your research and, and call and ask for references and see what they've done on social media. And then, you know, if somebody's tagged in, if it, you reach out to them on, you know, Facebook and say, Hey, do you mind telling us about, you know, the kind of trip you had and was it enjoyable? And, and I've had some other people that I know that have gone over that have horrible trips. They just, they did not enjoy it at all. It went batshit crazy. 
Um, you know, the, the animals were of poor quality, just, you know, just nightmares. And, um, you know, problems in Johannesburg with transfers and not their firework paperwork wasn't done correctly. And then they had the transfer over the Eastern Cape and um, uh, Airlink wasn't ready with their, they didn't realize that they needed to call East London for, first and let them know they were coming. So they couldn't get their guns from Johannesburg. So they had to have them carried. I mean, there's all kind of shit that happens. So for me, like having somebody like Nancy with a bula there, that is an American that's been there that can talk with, with passion and experience that there's a huge level of comfort there. More importantly, if you go to Africa with somebody that's been before, especially more than once, I think that goes back to that recommendation, right? Like splitting image was recommended and I didn't think twice because it came as a recommendation. I trust the people that are telling me this. I think that's, that's more because in these new people, they always, you know, when I, when I come uh, or when I'm getting to put these trips together, you know, we meet several times and we're kind of preparing and there's all these questions come up and normally it's about safety. That's why, you know, I try to kind of show the whole process in my video, you know, from the time we're leaving to, you know, I actually started at the range this year and had people shooting off sticks and working through that. And um, we've got an episode of what to actually bring to Africa because it never fails. You know, these guys that come over, you know, for the first or second time, you know, they're bringing five suitcases full of shit. Well, you don't need that. You can get away with one, you know, you need two days worth of clothes. That is it. Literally. That's all you need. And you know, the, the, the Vaki's filled all the way up and you've got straps and ropes trying to tie a bunch of shit down for two people. I'm like, you're never even going to open that suitcase over there. What, what you doing? So, um, yeah, I think from a show perspective, if you have somebody like that in recommendation, it's good. It, it, it's, it's weird for me to, to go and talk to a random outfitter, to be honest, it's just because I never know what you're going to get. I've had some bad experiences with uh, outfitters in the States um, that I bought packages from from the shows. And it you know, they turned out to be shit shows. And, you know, anybody can put on a good show and show some nice pictures or have a nice elk on the wall or, you know, a nice caribou or whatever. Everybody can do that. It's so it's hard, you know, you've got to be very careful and very selective. So I'd say, you know, having somebody like Nancy on the Villa side, that was really, really nice. Um, but for me, more importantly, was knowing that my pH said, no, 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 this is legit. These are good people. You will, you and your guests will be totally satisfied. And that's all I really needed to know, to be honest with you. Yeah. Pretty much, you know, because we have that relationship. So, so if, if, if there was any sort of word of advice that, that you could give to anyone coming out to South Africa for the first time, what are some of the key factors that you would advise them to look for, especially when going around these, these shows, you know, we're coming into show season. Well, what are some of the, like you said, everyone can paint a pretty picture, but it's, it's, it's actually proof is in the pudding. Number one. And number two, um, I, I kind of feel a lot of these outfitters, they, they over promise and under deliver. So what, what are some of the key factors that you would advise people to look for? Well, I, you know, I, I think, a, a reputable outfitter is something that you're going to have to figure out on your own and that you're going to have to do the research and, and really reach out and ask for references before you book with anybody. The thing is, you know, you're going through these shows and everybody's got this, you know, special show pricing, this, you know, 10 day planes game package with eight animals for $5,000. Well, what in what world? I mean, those aren't trophy quality animals for $5,000. You know, those are going to be coals at best, or you're going to run into concessions that don't have any of that animal and they try to upsell you on something else. So, you know, I'm always leery about packages. And what I've learned is that the cheapest outfitter is not the best outfitter. But then again, on the other side, the most expensive outfitter isn't the best outfitter either. You know, I think there's a, a happy middle ground between 
um, where where cost and quality kind of meet, um, where they plateau together, and that's something that that it takes a while to figure out. Um, you know, and I, like I said, I've had friends that have had horror stories. I just had a doctor friend that just got back and, you know, he just really, it was his first trip and he went with a group of guys that had been there before and he absolutely hated it. Like it was just, he said it was a shit show. They just didn't have their stuff together. They didn't seem, you know, much for game. And it was just, and I've heard stories like that. Fortunately, I've never been in that situation. Um, I've, I've been disappointed a, a couple of times with the quality of animals that we were seeing because we, we come late in the season. And that was something that was on us though. When you, if these outfitters have a tendency to to stack clients and on top of each other like cordwood so as soon as the season starts all the way through the end they're hunting and you know if you've already had 30 or 40 groups through there by the time your group gets there these animals are running scared for one because they've been shot at for shit all of the the biggest animals you know all of your trophy quality animals for the most part have been shot so now you're on a a second tier type of animal and the outfitters that regulate the amount of people on these properties and understand that hey we're only going to shoot you know 10 impala off this concession and we're only going to shoot two sables off this concession because that's what the population can sustain and we know what we've got up and coming um and they you know they get their list from their clients ahead of time so they know like it's planned okay we're we're going to go over here and we're going to hunt this black and Paul for you because we know we've got some studs over there and we've got a certain quota that we have to meet or you want a draft. I've got a really old mature draft, but we're going to go over here and do it. And I don't, there's some driving sometimes involved in being able to hunt that way, but I, I really don't mind it. You know, it's not horrible and you're to, to get that quality trophy and, and make that memory with your pH is worth it. Well, I, you know, just, just to add to that point is, um, <laughs> I was I was a little bit naive last year or two years ago when when I started doing hunts pretty much late on into the season and pretty early in the season, uh, our summertime. So it's it's scorching hot outside, uh, very uncomfortable conditions. We were we were blessed with some beautiful sceneries, but I I started realizing that a lot of the guys were actually trying to book as early in the season as possible, like you said, to get those first good quality animals. Um, and I think that's one of the things that deterred me away from, you know, the likes of Hunter's Hill and all those sort of places because you, you that's not conservation. You don't you want to be doing it for the right reasons. You know, stacking clients up on one on one another, you, you got to, you know, you'll be just bullshitting yourself to say um, that's not conservation uh, or that they're not restocking their farm because that's that's what they have to do it's 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 the ugly side of the industry and um it's a side that i guess doesn't get a lot of attention because a lot of people want to deter from it um i know i was one of them that tried to hide it for so many years but it you know as a professional hunter kind of eats up with you and it catches up with you because just like yourself i mean we're in it for the conservation side of things you know i've got a three-year-old daughter and i'm trying to preserve as many species as i possibly can you know for for her for her kids to enjoy you know um so yeah you know and and those are the things that i would highly recommend for people i mean especially for myself right now doing my own thing it's it's difficult to find those farms like you said that put a quota aside you know and mm-hmm. say we're only going to take off x amount of a year um but to me you know i'd rather struggle with that knowing that i'm doing my part for conservation than rather worrying about shit you know when when's the next truckload of games back or sable gonna come you know so right it is well, a difficult side an ugly side of the industry 
It is very much so. And I think that's one thing where kind of Hannes and I hit off on is that we, you know, when, when I've hunted at some of these places, Hannes and I would just leave and he would already have another farm lined up. So, hey, we're going to go chase in Yala, but it's going to be over here. Or we're going to go hunt Gemsbuck, but it's going to be over here. So we're hunting these areas that have very low pressure, that have a quota. And, you know, like the farmer, you're only going to take three this year kind of thing. And I know that uh, Tion with Matola, he does a fantastic job. He's very strict on his quotas. And, you know, I, we glassed, I uh, had Oscar with us, which is his first time in Africa and he'd never seen a white blessed buck. And he saw when he was like, Oh my God, that's the coolest thing ever. And, you know, you're looking over a herd of blessed buck where a, a small one, 17 inches, a small one, like that's quality game management, but he's, I'm, you're only can take two. That's it. We're only shooting two white blessed buck this year. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that I think more people should do. And it's hard because, you know, you want to, you want to bring that money in, right. And you want to keep developing the client base, but if you shoot out all your game, you're, there's not going to be any left. So you can't, you can't pressure it, you know, seven straight months and just shoot everything out. It just doesn't work that way. Plus you're going to piss your hunters off too. Um, maybe somebody that's not been there before that doesn't understand the, you know, the difference between a three-year-old and Paul and a mature, you know, trophy quality animal, they won't know the difference. And, and I've, watch phs do this a bunch you know man this impala is great and i'm like it's got fucking horns this big you know you're you're bullshitting your client he's like oh man this is the biggest one that i've seen in forever that i've passed 50 of those today no like and and so don't bullshit your client and i get it you know you want your clients to be successful and you want them to be happy and you want them to shoot but at the same time i'd rather pass a low quality animal than than shoot something that i know maybe not this trip because i don't know any better but when you get back to the lodge and you're seeing all these other pictures of what these other guys are taking and you look over at yours and you're like, and then you got to look at your pH cause you're the one that's only shoot that fucking thing, <laughs> yeah. you know? So you're responsible. So, and I've, I've yeah. seen it happen and I feel so bad for people. Like I'm at the skinning shed and you know, everybody's, you know, slapping each other on the ass and good job, good job. And I look over at this warthog that, you know, has got tusks that big and man, this is a monster one, you know, Impala, you know, that's, that's 14 inches or something like that. And, their pH is just drumming it up and I get that. But at the same time, it's bullshit. And I'm like, no, I mean, there's a, there's a better way to do it guys. So I don't know. I, I don't know how to fix that part of it. I know that, um, that for me, Hannes, like I said, we don't hunt a lot of the, the larger concessions. We go to smaller farms and, you know, I got to hunt with, uh, obviously with Matola this year a little bit. Um, and then we also hunted at, uh, Jordan Wardle's place and that place, I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it's spectacular. Yeah. And his family does a really, really good job out there. And it's it, probably one of the most beautiful farms I've ever hunted on, to be honest. Um, say for maybe the previous year when Hannes and I got to hunt an Orby over, uh, over the Indian ocean, that was, that was pretty spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 always something special and i mean those tags are very difficult to come by those rb tags so yeah. yeah it's 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 an incredible hand but sean how much how much of the safari is is that i mean you you mentioned it now and i i love it i love it when i get to take take my clients the opportunity to go to um a cattle farm where a lady whips up a home a homey meal uh, you maybe spend the night there or you have sit down and have lunch with them or, or whatever the case may be. But, th but that's part of the experience. And I've, I've noticed that, especially at the shows, a lot of the guys actually say they don't want to travel a lot, but it it's definitely counts as part of the experience. It does. And you know what? Unfortunately, um, you, you should expect some travel, um, it, especially if, if you want that 
that high quality trophy animal. Um, and you know, and there's guys, I know there's guys out there. I've seen them, you know, I'm only going to shoot a gold medal, yada, 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 yada. And that sucks. It must suck as a pH to have that kind of client there, you know, cause it's nearly impossible to shoot every gold, everything on the list has got to be gold medal or better. Well, maybe if you're, you know, if you've got a Buffalo and a Sable and you've got two good places and you know, the bulls there already and you know, which one, okay, that's doable. But when you've got 15 animals on your list and they all have to be gold medals or, or bust, that's impossible to do. You're never going to do that. You're going to waste all your time and you're not going to enjoy the experience. And that's, to me, that's more about, that's more about killing rather than hunting. So, you know, if, if my pH is happy with the animal and I'm happy with the animal, that's the animal I want, you know, and, and what it took us to get there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely unique. And I think that's, I don't know how to fix that part of the industry, you know, from, from y'all side, you know, maybe, I don't know. I think outfitters just try to book as many people as they possibly can and just stack people up and it becomes an issue. Um, for a first time hunter going, it's probably not a big deal because they don't know any better, but you have know, second, third, fourth time, they start to learn. They, you know, I can judge an Impala. I can judge a Sable. I can judge a Letchway. I can judge, you know, I've seen so many in y'all. I've seen so many Warthog. I can pretty much tell you whether or not it's a, it's a gold medal or not. Um, and I, but I've been there so many times and I've seen these animals firsthand that, that I can do that. A first time hunter can't do that. He's totally relying on his pH. So, you know, whatever his pH sells and that's what he's going to do. You know, Sean, it's, it's also, I, I, I kind of, I kind of think, and the outfitter puts a lot of pressure on, uh, on us as professional hunters, you know, they, they want to make, they want to make as much money off a hunt as possible. And, and, and again, I don't think I, I, when I say it and, it kind of sounds like I'm being a bit of an idiot, but it's not. It's just the nature of the beast, you know. It's the well, nature of business. It's it, yeah. That's what it is, you know. And there's definitely there's definitely space for it in the industry. Um, but what I'm what I'm hearing from you is is that, and it might be difficult for for first time hunters. But would you say that people coming out for the first time or even the second time, just to be a little bit more patient when making those decisions? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and, and it's important to develop that, you know, you need to give your outfitter your list as quickly as you possibly can to, um, a first time hunter is not going to have a list there. It's going to be a planes game package or something. Cause they don't know what they're, what the hell they're getting into, but get them your list as quick as possible. And I think most outfitters want to do the right thing. You know, they're not inherently bad people. You know, they just run into situations where at this concession, we just don't have that, you know, trophy mountain reed buck and we need to go elsewhere to get it. So long as you're up, you tell your client that, hey, we're going to have to do a little bit of travel to get you this reed buck, but I know where some good ones are and, and we, you know, that's what we need to do. And the hunter's going to say, oh, hell yeah, let's go. So the idea of not having to drive and not having to move, I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, that was some of that, you know, early Keith Warren shit at Hunter's Hill where, you know, there's everything here and you don't have to drive. That's true. Greg has fucking everything you could possibly want to hunt there. The, however, is there's some of that stuff that you're just not going to get that caliber trophy. Like he doesn't have good mountain reed buck right there at the main farm. Right. So you've got to go across the valley to, to hunt a mountain reed buck. Um, he's not going to have any of the tiny 10 with the exception of a, you know, maybe a steam buck or a, a common diker that you're going to run into. So you're going to have to travel to go do one of them. Um, but for a first timer in a planes game package, you know, a, a place like Hunter's Hill is nice because you don't have to leave really, you know, yeah. but once you've been there a little bit, um, and, and I, like I said, and I'm not, 
I don't want to throw shit at anybody. Greg is in Hunter's Hill. They've always been fantastic to us. Um, and matter of fact, this group that I'm taking back this year of 15 people, we're going to Hunter's Hill. You know, there it's with the exception of two of us, nobody's been before. So I'm taking a group, you know, there's 13 newbies that are going for the first time. And, and I've been working with Simon, you know, he and I chat often and he's getting everything lined up. And I feel really confident that Simon's going to, you know, make things happen and it's going to work out well. And then from then, um, actually, uh, I think I'm taking a few days off going down to meet with uh, with Doug and, and shoot some video at Splitting Image, go back up north, and then I'll finish the the trip out for the next several, several weeks with uh, with Avul. I've got another trip booked with some other clients. We're going to their northern camp there. And uh, I do a little until Hannes. Hannes is actually booked up with a buffalo hunt. So I've got a like a four or five day window there where I've got to kind of cater to myself. But I figured, you know what, I'll bring the bow. I'll go sit in the Boma and just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, yes, that sounds like a fantastic. So, have you booked with an outfitter up in, in Mozambique? Uh, Hannes is he, he takes care of all that, so okay. uh, he's got somebody I know last year in Namibia. Uh, we you know hunted a dick dick successfully, and it was um, uh, HW Safaris or Hunter's, Hunter's Guide Safaris that, that he booked with, and it just happened to be I swear it was Hannes's cousin, they had the exact same last name. I mean, it spelled the same way. He's a full unit. I'm like, they all had to come from the same place. But this guy, um, when he said he had Dick Dick, I, we, if we didn't see 200 a day, we didn't see one. You were picking through the Dick Dick to find the biggest one. And, and he's HW's like, or AW's like, not too small, too small. No, we can do better. It's to find Dick Dick. That's where you go. Like he's got Dick Dick. That's and Hannes took care of all of it. He's the one that lined it up. He did, re, he did the research. He did everything. And then, you know, so everybody was ready for us and, and to go. So I'm just, I kind of rely on him to do that. And I think that's things people don't understand, what you guys as PHs do for your clients behind the scenes. You know, so, and that's important to understand. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with you. But just the interesting thing, yeah, you, you mentioned you're going to be taking a group over to Hans's Hill. Um, and they 13 newbies there with with the success rates in the South African industry at the moment of 72% on return. How are you finding all these new people to come out with you? You know, it's it's one of those things. The I think the the social media presence and and the the way we've kind of changed the way we do our videos has really sparked a lot of interest. And so now it's becoming you know friends of friends of friends. You know that know us through somebody else that just see how much fun we have and we talk about it so passionately and we you know we kind of live that life. And those people want to they want to experience it too. Um, and then that's, I think that's kind of why we, we, I started tweaking and changing the type of format and, and getting into more of a storytelling mode with, with the video production is because I wanted to show the experience more so than, than the, the killing portion. Um, the, the experience is primary. The, the shot is secondary. It's fleeting. You, you're, you know, most people it, it's a, a second and it's gone. You know, I hunted a draft this year and the thing I remember the most is I, you know, I've hunted so much now. I don't really get nervous anymore. So I'm just always pretty steady and I never had a problem. I had to like, and I, I cut it out and then I have recut the video and I'm going to reupload it because there's a section in my draft hunt where I had to tell Hannes, Hey, you got to wait just a second. And I had to stand up off the gun. Like, dude, I need to catch my breath. This is like, and I never did. I did like my heart was beating like crazy. And yeah. I, 
I've always wanted to hunt a draft and he's always been on my list and this one just worked out right. And there were so many things that came together and I was nervous as shit. Like I had to back off the gun and like, honestly, we just let's sit for a second. Let me catch my breath so I can make an ethical shot and then calm down, got back in. I cut it out of the original, the original episode and then I've recut it and I'm going to re-upload it because I think it's important for people to see that, that, you know, that's, yeah. that's something that happens. How, how have you, have you had any shit from that video? Have you had any, no, not I've got and I knew it was coming too, and I knew it was a controversial subject. And, and so and I've never shied away from controversy, obviously, you know, I'll hit it straight on. And because I want I want that open discussion. I want people to question um, why we do it and and our ethics and our morals. And I need to, to open up that line of communication where it turns into conservation because they don't understand what conservation is. And that's the only if I have to do something slightly controversial to, to get them on on board and to start having that open dialogue then that's what we're going to do because it's important yeah i mean, I, mean it, I had a i did a podcast with sue tidwell how she um captured the whole conservation side of things and i, th I, th I think something i said to her as well and I, I kind of feel it happens um from the greenies quite often is that they're not willing to ha engage in that conversation but it's also it's it's one of our biggest problems you know i just i had i think i was on keith's um video the other day where i was actually watching the giraffe hunt and just some of the hunters comments on the, on his video about um you know all, all this meat goes to to the villages and all this sort of stuff and i think the way you've depicted a lot of the video is is you kind of highlight that right hang on yeah that's a little bit of a bullshit story because it goes to the butcher and it touches so well, many different hands before it actually um it's not well, just getting dumped at the village you know yeah, and, and that was a misconception that I had when I came to South Africa my very first time. I was under that same impression that, listen, all the meat's going to go to the village or going to go to the orphanage, and it's all donated. And you know what? That's not true. That's a, that's a load of shit. So the animals have value not only as a trophy but also because of the meat. And the outfitter is making money on that meat and, and because, like I said, there's there's a value there. But what that does is it keeps the cost of those animals where a hunter can come and afford to hunt them. If there's not that secondary market there, fine. But my problem is, is when people bullshit you and they say, oh, no, we're donating all this and we're doing. No, you're not. No, you, you can't. Find. Now, are there some outfitters that do? Probably. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Hell no. You know, and, and some of it should stay in camp for camp meat, and that's where your dinners are coming from. But be honest with people and just, you know, listen, we had, you know, there was eight people on my giraffe hunt behind the scenes that people didn't see. And another entire group of the Arbiter that was there on standby, like this was pre-planned. He, he and his crew were there just waiting for it. And because you've got limited time, you know, it's a little warm and you want to get the animal taken care of. And it, but I understand that, you know, that's part of it. And I think if you're, you're honest with your clients ahead of time and say, listen, that's not the real side of things. And Sure, that does happen, but a lot of that is that pomp and circumstance shit show that people want to throw out there and show like, oh, we got to go visit this orphanage and we're bringing all this meat there. And sure, some of that does happen. And I'm happy that Americans come over and they want to help out and, and, and bring something to somebody that needs it. But don't feed us a line of shit that this is where everything goes because it's not true. And it only takes one trip for you to figure that out, too. You know, it doesn't take long. So when when your first your first perception to where where you are now, I mean, you've experienced it pretty much all. You is nothing compared to what you wanted to expect. No, no, it's it's um, 
never in my wildest dreams could I imagine, especially being here and living kind of this life now and having such a passion um, for for your country. It's it's crazy. Like um, you know, I, I and I've I've read you know Hemingway and you know Roosevelt and you know about all these great hunters that have been before me and all these great tales and it's just, I can't even put it into words. Like it's just something Africa gets in you and you just, you can't get, you can't shake it. Um, but no, but, and I'm fine with the, the perception versus the reality part because I know now, and, and I understand as a business person that those things have to happen. That's also part of conservation too. You know, there, that, that additional money that is being generated from the sale of the meat of that animal goes right back into the farm. It pays for staff. It pays for employees. It keeps the lights on. It does everything to keep that operation running and moving. And, and it's necessary. You can't just, that'd be like us just walking out here and shooting a deer and just cutting its horns off and leaving it sit there. I mean, that's, well, no, that's not that's not ethical in any any way. I mean, we we don't do that. So, um, but no, and I think it gets for me honestly. Like, and I I have no idea why. Every trip is better than the last. It and I don't know how it. Just, every trip is a little. And my list keeps getting smaller and smaller too. Like I don't have these big lists anymore. But it's it's super targeted type of stuff. Um, and like Hannes and I have this thing, like every, every time I come, I hunt for your range fallow deer and we've done several together. And that's just one of the things we're going to do. And it's not, it's never primary on my list. It's just like, Hey, if we get a couple days here or there, let's go, you know, see if we can chase a fallow deer. And that's something we kind of just do together. And we just, you know, love doing that. And then, you know, the, when you get to the tiny ten and those, those kind of animals, it, it, it's difficult. And those hunts can take some time and they're, you know, the success rate, you know, right off the bat, like the blue diker. I mean, it's very, very difficult hunt. Um, fortunately I, you know, I shot mine, I think we sat for three hours and the Boma that was already pre-built and, and ready to go and, and boom, it was done. I've seen and heard people that have done it for two weeks straight and never seen one, you know, kind of thing. And the same with leopard hunts, you know, people sitting all night long for, you know, days and days and days and never seeing a leopard. And so, but that's part of it. So, but I've been pretty fortunate and, and I really enjoy it. And, and each of those animals are challenging too, in their own right. So, um, you know, and they're definitely, they're, they're not canned hunts. When you're chasing the tiny 10 and some of that other stuff, those are not even close. There is not a fence that can hold those animals in, you know, and that's what I try to explain to people when they first come. I'm like, they, they ask me about, you know, the high fence, right? So is, I'm like, yes, everything in South Africa is high fence. I said, but when you get to these concessions and start driving around, you don't realize how big these places are. You know, a, a big chunk of land in the States, you know, like my farm here is 300 acres and it's a, that's considered a large farm. Uh, but for you guys, you're talking about, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 hectares, you know, that's not even, so our, you know, definition of large and years are two totally different things. And that's what I tell people, listen, about the time you get into the front gate is the last time for the most part, you're going to see a fence. So get that shit out of your mind. And these animals are wild as shit. Like I, I still, you know, I've never seen a zebra that wasn't, you know, hauling ass wide ass open they always see me you know see us coming and they're always running like these things never slow down so um but yeah it's uh it's every trip has been unique and it continues to be that and and now we're adding some other countries in there as we bounce around too yeah i mean it's just it's interesting that you you mentioned the whole high fence thing and i i have this debate with my fellow phs constantly i mean it's just it's one of those things where the misconception about a fence is huge, especially from an American point of view, because um, you guys are de dealing with deer and bear and that sort of stuff. You're not dealing with eland that can, 
you know, herds of eland that can push over a half fence in, in a matter yeah. of seconds, yeah. you know, like like and, that, like that dude up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that boy up there, you know, uh-huh. and 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 that's that's the thing because I think that the misconception is is that. You know, these half fans keep these animals in to a certain extent. But trust me, I've been on many, many game farms where buffalo are three neighbors' farms down, hippo are in another dam. It's you're not gonna keep a water again from on on a half fence. Um, you know, and, and the the whole misconception about I guess free range is is always a nice way to say it. But I prefer to say fair chase. In, in, in mm-hmm. essence, you know, the, the fellow deer, it's a fair chase, you know, in yep. the wide open areas, because what a fellow deer can do is jump a standard stock fence, whereas a springbuck can't, you know, so, you know, that, that free range aspect gets kind of taken out of it. Um, but Sean, getting down to, to the bottom end of the stick, and I don't want to take your sales pitch away to your, to, <laughs> to the guys coming out, but what, what has been... I normally like to end is what, what would one hunt be that you would like to highlight, but I want to do it a little bit differently. What has been one of your most memorable hunts you've had in, in South Africa? Um, from, a, from an overall trip or an individual hunt? Just an individual hunt, an experience. Um, it, it, for me, it's either, it's one of two. It's either going to be my draft hunt from this year um, because there was so much planning that went into that a specific animal at a specific farm with Tion and Hannes being neighbors. Uh, and that was really special to me to, to be able to do that, especially a bull that was 20 plus years old. Um, but honestly, um, I think when I hunted with my wife and I was, I'm, I was behind the camera filming for her while she was able to take her first animals, I wasn't even on the gun, but I got more enjoyment and more excitement and more nervous doing that than I've ever been when I'm on the gun. And I think, you know, and it was a, it was a warthog and I don't even remember what the animal was. I just remember the feeling that I got being there, you know, watching them. And then I kind of get to relive that now when I'm hunting with like Dakota or a staff or somebody, their first time there and you see their faces and how excited they are. And, um, you know, all the hunts that, that I've done been, and there's a story too, right? I can tell you there's a story with every single hunt I've been on. I can tell you where that Elan came from and where that heart of beast came from and where those games, but I know exactly where I was, who I was with the, the time of day. And, you know, they're all unique in their own perspective. But for me, I think it's because of the conservation piece and knowing that we had to take that specific animal out of the herd. And it was that specific animal that it was, um, it, it meant more that way. Um, to me. And, um, you know, it wasn't, it it was just something different and unique that I think most people don't get the opportunity to do, especially with an animal that old and and planning and, you know, everything that goes into it. So, you know, it's not about, we just didn't happen upon that animal, you know, that was a plan. And there were several people, I mean, what the other part of that, that you didn't see is we had four different groups of spotters on that farm trying to locate, you know, that, that giraffe, because, you know, they, a draft will still disappear on you. You wouldn't think an animal that big could disappear. They do like right now, just gone. It's crazy. So yeah, for me, I think that's it. And, and overall, I think just the, you know, when I get to go with a group of people and I can, I can see the enjoyment that they're having and the, the memories that they're making with their friends and family that they're going to bring back and share with other people. That's the best advertisement that you could possibly give anybody. Right. You know, cause those, those firsthand accounts of, of what happened, they're going to come back and they're like, 
like I said, I'm bringing 15 or 13 new people this year, and it's all because of stuff like that. It's the stories and the videos and the experiences. These people aren't going to SEI and buying a random hunt. They're not going to Harrisburg and buying a hunt. They're not going to Dallas Safari Club and buying a hunt. These people are coming because of what we've done and what we've showed them, and they're kind of you know, they live vicariously through us for several years now, and and that's kind of what drives that to to go. But yeah, it's um. Very, very unique, and like I said, I'm not done yet. So next year we could have this conversation. It may be totally something different then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's incredible. I mean, I just love how passionate you are about South Africa and the conservation behind it. It's, it's very, you know, very seldom. I think other than you and Pat, I don't know if there's anyone I've spoken to on the podcast that's more passionate about South Africa than you guys. But it's incredible to see. But bringing these groups out what for for a new a new timer maybe listening to this podcast or or whatever what what would the one piece of advice you would give them and not hunting aspect as far as traveling over or or having an experience Um, in south africa well if i guess it depends on where they're going and and who the outfitter is so if if they're going to be hunting limpopo for example they're going to get a VIP pickup and picked up right from the airport and they don't have to worry about anything. If they're going to travel to, to the Cape. Um, and so there's going to be a layover and an overnight stay, do your due diligence, talk to your outfitter, make sure you get that VIP pickup, make sure that you, you know, you've got Africa sky or you've got, um, you know, there's several there, you know, make sure somebody's dealing with your gun paperwork and that you've got somebody there. That's the most daunting part of it is, is getting there and that turning into a shit show. So if that's on lockdown and everything's good to go, then, then you, you won't have a problem, but that's what I would recommend first. Um, if, from a travel perspective, the, you know, the, the outfitter thing, I think a recommendation, you know, is, is the best thing anybody can give. Um, you know, we, I actually, you know, when I, I started hunting, uh, with, with Greg, I don't know, seven-ish years ago now, a little bit. Um, and it was actually because of video that I, I found Keith Warren was there, right? So Keith was hunting there, and that's kind of how I figured out. I'd never seen, and I'd actually not seen Hunter's Hill at, at the shows before. I pro- they're probably there, but I just missed them. And it was on, honestly Keith, so I kind of opened up a dialogue with Greg and um, and Sherlane early on and you know put some pricing together, and, and we went ahead and, and we've hunted there several times. And this trip that we're going this year has actually been planned for five years. Um, Mike Sumner's son, Emmett, graduates high school this year, and as his gift, I've, I bought his plane ticket and Mike's taking him over on safari. And so like this, it literally, it's been booked for five years. And then it originally was only going to be like five of us in that group. And just, you know, we've add on, add on, add on, add on, add on. And now it's ballooned into this thing. And then the, the really neat thing for Emmett is Emmett's doing an internship in Limpopo with Nooms on. So he's going to hunt first. And then he's going back to Limpopo, RPH over there. Brent's picking him up, and he's going to intern with them for like six or eight weeks and then fly back stateside. So his kind of senior trip is also an internship and actually learning the industry firsthand on the ground. Yeah, so that's fantastic. And, and you know, I, I, I would recommend every youngster that gets that opportunity take it with both hands. You know, it's something yeah. very, very special. Um, Sean, so so the hunting side and setting these hunts up is is – is that pretty much part of the the whole Salt Lake um, brand? Is that what you guys are doing? If so, yeah. how do the guys get in in contact the, with you? Yeah, I mean, and we're we're going to help anybody no matter what. So we're we we co-sponsor hunts now. So we're we're working with Avula, and and we'll work with other outfitters too. In you know, I think 
the idea with it, with this is if we can every year co-sponsor two or three different hunts where we get people that watch us and follow us on social media that are comfortable with us and they understand that we're professionals at this, we've done it so many times, give somebody an opportunity to go with a group of people where they know everything's going to be taken care of and handled. And that's what we've started to do. So we've, we've done a co-sponsored hunt with a bulla that's going to take place after the hunter's hill hunt. And that's a different group that's coming over. Um, Nancy's actually flying over with that group herself personally and handing them off. And that's going to be a 10 day hunt. And yeah, so that's the kind of thing that I'd like to do several times a year, um, you know, is put those things together and, and to be able to hunt and enjoy it and, and get that kind of word out there and, and from us, there's there's no there's no money in it whatsoever. You know, we don't do it for we're not getting paid. You know, Hunter Shell doesn't pay us, the bullet doesn't pay us, nobody pays us to to talk good about them or bad about them. Um, you know, the making money for us comes on on the backside on on the sponsorship end and on the merchandising, especially. That's where you know we're actually gonna be able to to make money. But for for us it's about enjoying it. And you know, frankly, if I get to go hang out with a new group of guys two or three times a year in South Africa, and that's the best life anybody can live. I mean that's and and you know, I can I can open that that world up to other people. And that's, you know, something that's really unique. And then, you know, as I kind of grow, you know, we're, we're going north. We're starting to, you know, move north out of South Africa and, and, and go chase some of that other stuff. So we're, we're super excited about it. Sure, I'm, I'm super excited to watch how the story unfolds. Um, you know, myself and Hannes, we've, we've been very good mates for some time now. And we often talk about your guys' hunts and, um, and how passionate you guys are about doing it and and just really uh, from from my side i just want to thank you guys for putting south africa on the map number one and number two representing us in in probably the best way i've seen in a very very long time so f- from my side i just want to say thank you so much but where can guys get hold of you i know i'll i'll definitely in this podcast i'll tag all the social media tags that i possibly can but other than that where's are you going to go to any of the shows this year or anything like that uh- um, we're going to be at all the shows, but not as a vendor. Um, we're just going to be there for several days. We'll go to Harrisburg. We'll go to SCI. Um, I, I think we're going to miss Dallas Safari Club because we've got a another co-sponsored event we're doing with Triple P that's outside of uh, Houston. Um, but uh, but we'll be at several of the shows, and it's pretty easy to find us um, on social media too. You'll know exactly where we're going to be because Bree's posting all the time and and knowing. But you know, if you ever have a question, uh, feel free. Any of our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, all the platforms, TikTok, we respond almost instantly as soon as we see them. You know, if I'm even if I'm hunting, Bree will send me a text. Hey, you've got a comment on there. Somebody wants to reach out, um, or you can email us at info at saltlakeoutdoors.com. And, um, you know, we're, we're happy to help and, and set you up with somebody that, that we would recommend. And that, I think that's the biggest thing. I'm not going to tell anybody to do something that I haven't vetted already first or that I feel comfortable with. So yeah, if anybody wants any information or, you know, just wants to shoot the shit cause you're like-minded and, and do the same things as we do, then feel free to reach out. We, we appreciate it. I think the more people that we can get doing this and, and, and talking about it, the better it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's unique to, to hunting. You know, the, the ability to hunt, I don't know how many huntable species you have in South Africa, what the exact number is, but it's crazy. It, we don't get that in the States. Um, sure. Other than YouTube, uh, the podcast, where can they listen to it? Where can they find it? Are you guys on Spotify? Uh, 
it's it's gonna yeah once we once we get wrapped with the first season filming them that's going to be available on spotify uh primarily to start with so um and and there will be a big uh, big release on social media when the, so we're going to drop um all the episodes not at the same time but i think a week apart but we're we're doing everything filming everything so it's both a um it's a it's a video podcast as well um, so you can live stream it if you like. Um, but uh, we've got we've got actually lots of cool people. We did uh, you know we've got some a lot of talk about South Africa, but it's also uh, we've we've interviewed and toured uh, deer farms and different outfitters in Montana on elk hunts and just everything about we we sat down with uh, with the guys last year from Tethered you know with the tree saddles and so there's a, a bunch of cool stuff that we've done that you know it's taken a while to put together but we're going to kind of release it out and then start you know getting ramped up for. For next year and congratulations by the way on all your downloads that's fantastic <laughs> no thanks so much i'm hoping it ticks over the two million uh mark now with this one but i'm sure it will but it's 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 been a journey and like i said i when people ask me why well, you know what's the, what's the plan for ph journals i actually don't know it's just to try and reflect pretty much what you guys are doing just to try and reflect our industry in the best possible light and just conservation you know that's that's what it's about yeah. so yeah. Yeah. Um, and from my side, sorry, I said, the end. and, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm, we're just fortunate to be, be able to live this kind of life and do this thing. Um, and, and it's a lot of hard work and a lot of long nights and, and a little bit of sleep, but it's a passion that you just get for it. And like I said, fortunately that, you know, I've, I've been blessed that I can be able to do this and I can bring my friends along and, and encourage it and meet new people. Like, you know, so every, like I've got friends in South Africa all over the place now for these, you know, relationships I made. And it's just a great thing. Yeah. Well, from my side, I've had goosebumps throughout this whole episode. So from my side, once again, just thank you. It's It's been an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, I wish you luck for next year. I know you guys are going to smash it out. Hopefully, we can catch up maybe at one of the shows. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, just um, just keep doing what you guys are doing. It's, it's fantastic. From a South African point of view, you guys are highlighting us in the in the best possible way. You're representing our industry and our, our, our love for our country very, very well. And it's, it's awesome to see. So from my side... I just want to say thank you, and um, yeah, we look forward to catching up a little bit later. Yeah, hey, and go Springboks. <laughs> there we go. World champions that, four times. <laughs> that that was the first and only rugby match I've watched in its entirety, from start to finish, and it was like I was on pins and needles the whole time. It was awesome. <laughs> so now, I, now I'm hooked. Like, <laughs> it's not, not American football anymore. It's rugby. That's like a crazy sport. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no well fantastic sean i know you got a lot of things to do and uh yeah have a fantastic day further and then um yeah we'll definitely catch up soon perfect thanks buddy have a good one, have a good one. thanks cheers bud